Welcome to Have a Life Teaching, the podcast designed for educators who are dedicated to enhancing their teaching practice and creating a positive impact on their students' lives. In each episode, we'll dive deep into the world of education, exploring a wide range of topics related to curriculum, instruction, and assessment in K-12 schools. Together, we'll learn from the brightest minds in the education field. So if you're a passionate educator who's ready to take your teaching practice to the next level, join us as we explore the exciting world of education. My name is John Shimbari, signing in and saying, let's have a life teaching. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Have a Life Teaching, where we hope if you're a teacher or a leader, you're getting some great ideas to bring back either into your classroom or your school that are going to really help us to help students grow and achieve in their learning. With that in mind, I know that those listeners that are listening into the podcast will identify with, and that is this idea of technology. What do we do with technology? How do we use technology in classrooms? And I could tell you as a consultant that I'll go into schools on a regular basis and there still isn't a set answer for how to really manage all of our personal devices that we have, how to deal with the reduced attention spans, not only of children, but of adults, given how impactful social media and online digital sources have become. So when I do a lot of work in schools, I'll either see schools totally locking down and banning cell phones and banning technology. We see this now either even in the fear that AI is generating, or I see almost a total surrender to unpurposeful use of technology where the kids are just running amok with their personal devices. With all this in mind, I'm really excited to have our next guest joining us. Our next guest, Jeff Utech, is CEO and founder of Shifting Schools, a consultancy firm that provides schools and school districts with a lot of support around technology. So this is one reason why I was really excited to have Jeff on the podcast today talking about this. He is also the host of a blog called The Thinking School and also has his own podcast through Shifting Schools. Jeff, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, John. Appreciate it. So Jeff, with that in mind, and again, you do a lot of speaking about this. I know last year you were also at the Global Knowledge Summit in Dubai. You're speaking not only to a lot of educators in the States about the use of technology and particularly cell phones in the classroom, but you are also speaking internationally on this topic. Could you tell us a little bit how you got involved in education to begin with and how did the use, the proper use of technology become your area of interest? Well, again, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And it's always great to have a conversation, especially in the era that we are in right now, where it seems like uh, the topic on everybody's mind is AI. And maybe we can get into that a little bit. I come from a family of educators. My dad was a FFA welding teacher, biology teacher at a high school. And my mom retired as an elementary school principal. We also grew up on a farm. Uh, with about 15 to 1700 acres, depending on the year. And like most family farms, uh, you have three boys, but the farm only support one of them. So, you know, we (laughs) rock, paper, and scissored and the middle boy got the farm. So the other two became teachers. So my younger brother's a uh, band 
teacher as well, music teacher down uh, in the city, not far from me here. I was uh, 17, actually, when I decided I wanted to be a teacher. I got to do some pretty incredible things. We won't go into that, where I actually was teaching classes while I was in high school. And that led to some interesting uh, ideas. And I just knew fourth grade teacher. I always think of myself as a fourth grade teacher. That's my passion. That's my love. But really where it started was my second year of teaching. I uh, Here in the state of Washington, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation were giving away grants. And I applied for a grant my second year of teaching. So I'm all of, I don't know, 24 years old at the time. And, I, and the grant was, because this is what we believed, it's 2000, 2001. And we believed, and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation believed, that if we had one computer to every four students in the classroom, we would change education, right? right. And, and some of you might remember this, like that was the thing. We just need one computer to four kids. We put the Apple IIe's in the back of the room, and we tried to <laughs> fill up classrooms with, with computers. Uh, and I got this grant, and it, the grant was fascinating because it, because it gave one computer to every four kids. Uh, I went to my I went to my principal and I said, look, I know we're going to be overloaded in fourth grade. Just give me all the extra kids. I don't split them up between the two fourth grade class. I want all of them. So I ended up with 34 kids, which meant I got seven computers in the classroom. But it also came with a laptop for the teacher and an LCD projector. And at the time, it was the only LCD projector in our building. Like this is like, wow. you just think about, we have LCD projectors everywhere now, but back in the day, I had the first ones. So that's where it really started is I started thinking about, okay, well, what am I going to do with these computers and kids? And we did some incredible stuff back then. My kids were, I mean, in fourth grade, we were doing virtual stock markets and kids were learning to network them together. All the computers were known by their IP addresses. And we were doing some pretty incredible stuff. I still am in touch with some of those students today. And they still talk about some of the, the activities we were able to do. From there, that really sparked my interest in tech. We went overseas for a while. And while I was in Saudi Arabia, I talked to my principal into rolling out a one-to-one -one program. Exactly. From there, it just kept snowballing. I started the blog in 2005 when we moved to Shanghai and taught in Shanghai for, for three years and started rolling out one-to-one -one programs across Asia in 2005, 2006. Got contacted by other international schools, started consulting. And so was teaching full-time, consulting full-time, started a couple different programs, started a master's degree program while we were down in Bangkok, which is where we went after Shanghai. Got that, took a thousand teachers through that program. And it just, it kept going. In 2012, my wife and I moved back here to Washington, now live in Seattle. About the same time across America, we were starting to roll out one-to-one -one programs. And I was mm -hmm. like, well, I've already been doing this for seven years. Let me support you. And so I've been full-time consulting ever since, rolling out one-to-one -one programs, supporting schools and doing that. And then of course, talking about cell phones, because that's always the a big question mark. And then the pandemic hit, and now we're doing AI stuff. It just keeps going. But I've twice presented the, the conference in Dubai. That's a UN-sponsored conference. So it's a UN development program conference. I've, I've been able to present there. I have also supported in rolling out one-to-one -one programs in the middle of Africa. There's some interesting going, things going on in the way the UN is, is switching their, their idea around what does it mean to be educated today. All has to do because of devices and wireless internet. That's that's kind of, it's, it's amazing what's happening on a global scale, not just in our own backyards here in the, here in the States. Connected. I thought it might be great to talk about how to manage cell phone use in the classroom. But as you mentioned, AI is also a hot topic. Do we ban it? Do we not ban it? Maybe we should talk about technology in general. There must be a happy medium between complete banning and a free-for-all usage. What would you say about why we should care about having, say, a systemic plan for the use of technology? It's a great question. And I think the number one thing that I always lean on and anybody who's been to any of my trainings has probably heard this way too many times because it's it's the lens that I use everything that we do in schools through, which is our goal 
our goal in education, our job, the reason why we got into being educators is to prepare students for their future and not our past. And when you start thinking about, and if you can keep that in the center of your mind, what is the future of the children in front of me today? It helps us make decisions on what are the skills and dispositions we need. And I think that becomes a really interesting conversation. It's an interesting way to look at it. And when we start thinking about even the lesson that you're doing today, what is it in this lesson that is going to prepare students for their future and not my past? Because mm. my past is my past. And my past was really different. My past, I wrote everything on paper and pencil. Student future, nobody writes anything on paper and pencil. The most you write on paper and pencil is some notes. Nobody writes a paper. And this is one of the problems we're having with AI right now is we have teachers who are saying, well, the way to get around AI is to make kids to go back to writing on paper and pencil. And I can't find, if our goal is to prepare students for their future. I cannot find anybody in indi any industry, any industry that we are preparing students for who are saying, because of AI, you know what we're going to do? Make everybody write their reports on paper and pencil. I can't find it. Now, maybe I'm not looking in the right place. And I'd love it if anybody wants to email me, Jeff at Shifting Schools, and say, yeah, here's an industry where they're now making people write reports on paper and pencil because of AI. I would love to hear about it. But what, we're, what we have to understand is the future is going to be technology. And it always has been, and it always will be. I mean, whether it was, we had to, at one point, we had to move from writing on slate to writing in pencil, from pencil to pen. And so we are, we just need to, if we keep that as our focus, what is the future? How am I preparing students for their future, not my past? Then we can look at technology through a lens of, we should not be blocking AI. We should not be blocking AI because the future for these children is a future with AI. And if we are not willing to unblock it and have the hard conversations and muddle our way through it with them now, then who is? It's our job to muddle through this world of unknowingness, this constant world of change to prepare them for a future. If we continue to go, well, I used to have to write 72 essays, so kids ha should have to write 72 essays as well, isn't gonna work. That becomes why we're unblocking ChatGPT. There's a multiple different reasons. It's hey. also an equity play. You know, whenever I look hey. at technology, it's an equity. It's an equity play. I need every kid to have an equitable access to the world's knowledge. And I need every kid to have equitable access to AI. I worked with 26 school districts across the state of Washington. Every one of those school districts has AI open to my open to their students. Every one of those districts is now teaching students how to apply to university with AI, apply for scholarships with AI how to set up a resume with AI, how to do AI prompt engineering, because do you know what the number one skill is that companies are now looking for? AI prompt engineering. Mm -hmm. See, my kids in my backyard are all being educated on how to use this. Are your kids? I hope so, because that would be equitable. But if your district deciding to block technology because you don't understand it because of your past, that becomes an issue. Yeah. And now we create an inequitable world, especially with tech. Yeah. We had the pandemic. It took the pandemic to get to throw an inequity in our face. And that inequity was not every child across America or the world had access to the internet. And depending on what state you were in, you ended up here in the state of Washington. We taught at home for a year and a half. And it was an, an inequity in our state. Mm -hmm. And you know what? We gave every kid a laptop. Every kid has a laptop now in our state to learn. So we got, we found an inequity and we overcame it. That's what we do in education. The last thing I want to do is create another inequity by saying, oh, this school district is going to teach their kids AI. That school district isn't going to teach their kids AI. This school district is teaching their kids how to handle social media influencers and understanding how social media works so that they understand how to get out of their phones and do the work we need them to do. This district over here is banning cell phones. Therefore, we're not having the conversations of what's going on in social media. 
We wonder why kids' depression is an all-time high. Anxiety is at an all-time high because nobody's having the conversation with the kids. I like the tie-in you make to one of the reasons why our kids might be struggling with mental health issues, as well as just coming off of the pandemic and how really utilizing technology and understanding technology can hopefully mitigate the negative effects of social media. Uh, but also, too, to your point about AI and it really preparing students for the future, whether it's AI, whether it's cell phone usage. I think the common trend there or the commonality there is definitely how do we really help students understand these technologies? Because they are going to be a part of their lives moving forward. And in fact, they're going to see changes to technology exponentially. Even if the technology itself changes, how do we prepare students for a world where there will always be technological change at a, at a pace that society has never actually had before? Even ChatGPT, if we look at that, what are they on the fourth, fifth generation of that already? Fourth, yeah. With all that in mind, Jeff, so you say that, and I agree with you, that we need to be preparing our students for their future, not our past. But given that we are of this older generation, how do we prepare students who are fully digital when we ourselves are not necessarily digital natives? What should we as educators be doing in our classrooms? How do we actually harness the power of these tools while mitigating some of the cons Let's start with what we know about this generation. And I think you hit on something here is that depending on what generation you are, that's my second passion is understanding generations, because I think it's something that we don't pay enough attention to in education. And Purdue University just released the first data that we've seen on Generation Alpha. Now, Generation Alpha is that generation right now that they will be they will potentially be done being born around the year 20, uh, 2029. So these are kids right now, the oldest is 12, and they go down through all of our elementary schools. And we have some things that are very interesting about this generation already. So number one that we know is there are behavior concerns. This isn't a pandemic thing. And I know there's a lot of teachers who are dealing and saying like, all of a sudden, classroom management is out of control. Student behavior is out of control. It's a pandemic thing. It's not. There's research to support that this generation is having issues around behavior. And those issues are stemmed from other things happening in other generations. What Purdue University just released shows that some of the things that are causing this are we have here and then we'll just use America because we live here in America and that's where mm -hmm. we've got most of our data from. But here in America, we are waiting longer and longer to have children. We are now seeing that most families are waiting until their mid 30s to start having children because you want to be financially stable and it's taking longer and longer to be financially stable, which is putting a larger gap between parents and students, right? right? Parents and their children. That gap is widening. When that gap widens, parents have different expectations for their children. And so children are under a different pressure than probably you or I were as a kid growing up. They are under more social pressure. They are less free to go and explore things on their own. We have seen this across all kinds of uh, all kinds of research. You can look at Dana Boyd's called It's Complicated. She did incredible research around Gen Z and the millennials with this. But we have a generation who's having all these kinds of behavioral concerns. So there's a behavioral side to this. It well-documented research because these kids do not know how to go out. They have not gone out. They have not played with friends in their neighborhood. They don't know how to play hot lava and play with other kids and come up with the rules on the fly of how to do that. They've never negotiated that. And then they end up in our schools. We've got that going on. That's number one. Number two, there's a data point out of the Pew Research 
that shows that we have moved from the average age of a child touching a connected device for the first time used to be around age two. That has now slipped down to about 18 months. So we have a generation coming into our schools who have been on devices, majority of them, around the age 18 months. And, you know, kids hit our schools around the age six or seven. These kids have already been used to learning on devices, using devices, not saying it's right. I'm saying this is what society is giving right. us. As educators, we have to understand the brains that are coming into our classrooms. This is why I work with kindergarten teachers and kindergarten teachers are teaching two alphabets. You're teaching the alphabet you and I know, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, but mm -hmm. you're also teaching the alphabet that students know. Q-W-E-R-T-Y-U, known as the query T keyboard. So we need to be teaching kids two different, right? Their You're future, right. their future, not my past. So we have all of this stuff that is constantly coming. And we, as a generation, I'm a Gen Xer. We, we didn't teach that way. I didn't get my first cell phone until I was 23. I didn't get a computer. I mean, I didn't turn in my first typed written report until I was in high school. This idea of where we are in generations becomes really important because we all know what it was like to be 10 years old, 12 years old, 17 years old through my lens. And the lens that these children have today is not that lens. That becomes a struggle and a disconnect. That resonates with me. When I look at my nephew, who is ironically 12, he's dealing with issues of kids rating each other on their phone. But that's, that's not a new thing. Every 12 year old rates each other. You and I just did it differently. It wasn't on the phone. You rated me whether or not I had the right Jansport backpack or I was wearing <laughs> the right Nike shoes. Right. That's how we rated each other. There was no platform. I mean, that's 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 a kid thing. We have to stop mixing up what is human development 101, which hopefully every educator went through. There's a human development thing here at play. It's just how the technology is allowing that to manifest itself in different ways that other generations didn't. Speaking of that, to your point, rating has always been a factor of being in middle school. Yes. But now they're doing it online, on social media. How is that different than, say, the way we rated each other in middle school? And it's what's to be concerning about or what's concerning about that? And what can we do about that? So it's different because it's public. That's what makes it different. It's different because it's public. And it used to be public as well. When, you know, kids wouldn't talk to you down the hallway because you smelled or because you had your T-shirt on backwards or because you didn't wear the right backpack or you weren't looking the way that you were supposed to look like the rating wasn't as public as it is today. When we get to social media, the problem is, is all of these ratings become public and you are it's a popularity contest. You were popular in school or you weren't popular in school and everybody, everybody before technology knew who the popular kids were. With technology now, that popularity has a number and it's a number of likes, it's a number of hearts, it's a number of replies, it's a number of followers on Instagram. But we also have to understand, and I'll just use Instagram because almost every school district I work with, when I talk to the kids, Instagram runs the social fabric of a school. And it becomes very, very difficult at a middle school where by middle school, you start having this divide of parents who decide to give their children a cell phone and parents who have decided not yet to give their kids a cell phone. You've got parents who say, oh, at age 10, at age 11, age 11, age 13. And so middle school is really hard on kids. It's hard enough already being in middle school. And then all of a sudden, if you're not in Instagram, you're not part of the school culture. And here's the thing. Do we need to help understand that? Yes, 100%. What can we do? We can start having conversations about it. And this is the problem is we have to unblock social media. Check this out. Unblock social media in our schools so that we can have conversations about it. 
sticking your head in the sand and pretending that Instagram doesn't exist, pretending that social media doesn't exist, isn't helping kids because their parents aren't talking about it at home. And it's our job to help and prepare them for their future where these platforms are going to be out here. Now, here's the crazy part. There's research out there that will show you if I unblock social media, there is absolutely no rise in cyber bullying. If I block social media, there is no rise in cyber bullying. Unblocking social media in schools does not cause a spike in, in cyber bullying. Do you know what the research shows? It lowers it. Why? Because we can start having conversations about it. And when we can start having conversations in our classroom around, hey, everybody open up your Instagram. Everybody, I want you to find the first ad in your Instagram screen. Now we're going to look at this through, and I'm just taking the ELA class. We're going to look at this through tone. What tone is coming through that ad? What's the theme of that ad? What's the lighting like? We can go into we can go into science class. How did they get the lighting so there's no shadows behind them? What does that look like? And see, this is one of the things I need every, especially middle school, every middle school teacher to be supporting kids with is helping them to understand that the ads that they see in their social media is targeted exactly to them. It's also why we are seeing eating disorders among girls on a rise and we're seeing steroid use among men on a, on a rise, young men in, on a rise in uh, middle school, high school, because nobody is seeing the ads that that child sees. And this becomes an issue when you and I sit down and watch TV together. And if, if I'm your kid, John, and you and I sit down and watch TV together, you know, all the ads I'm being exposed to, but see in my social media account, nobody knows, but me, what ads I'm being to, we have to have ad recognition. Who is talking to these kids about stop and look at that ad? Why is that ad targeting you? Why is that ad? Why are you seeing that ad right now? What do they know about you? What are they trying to sell you? What is their pitch? What's the theme? What's the tone? And that's that's the conversation. That's literacy. You want to teach literacy in 2023 and beyond? That's literacy. And what resonates there with what you're saying is that's targeting the social emotional learning piece. Kids understanding 100%. Life skills in terms of what they're seeing, what they're being exposed to, how they interpret that, analyze that. But that's also an academic. There's an academic piece to that too, especially if you are talking about the tone of the of the ad and the purpose and the evidence citing a claim. So to your point about not banning technology and social media, but then having those conversations, I could definitely see that connection between helping kids process socially and emotionally what they're being exposed to in a way, like you said, we were not exposed to, but also then using it as an academic learning moment as well. Stop oh, yeah. having kids write essays and start having them make social media campaigns because AI yeah. can write your essay. You know what AI can't do yet? Create a social media campaign for my Instagram account. Do you know what kids will not use AI for? My Instagram account. It's mine. But instead of doing an essay, then let's have kids create a social media campaign around stressors of a seventh grader, homework help tips for ninth graders. And we could set up a class Instagram account. They don't even have to put it on their personal one if they don't want to. And we will help kids speak a language, learn how to make content. Because once you learn how to make a, a, a campaign, you understand how campaigns are being targeted towards you because you're learning how to target them towards someone else. Switching gears a little bit, what should educators do then if we agree, and let's just go with the premise that we don't ban AI, what should educators be doing to help students use AI effectively? How can we actually help students augment and improve their communication skills through AI? 
So this is the work we're doing over at Shifting Schools. And if you go over to shiftingschools.com, up at the top, it'll say free guides. Uh, we've got a bunch of free PDFs to get teachers started. Or you can join us over at our network, camp.shiftingschools.com, where we're having all kinds of, there's over 100 educators there already who are just wrestling with these same questions. But I think the first thing is to, the first thing that we do with, with teachers and with students is understand AI is a thought partner. And that's the words that we use. It's a thought partner. And I've, I've, we've taken kids through this. You can even have kids. One of the things, middle school, high school, I might have it do is I will give it a prompt. If I'm a teacher, I'll give it the essay prompt and ask ChatGPT to write a five paragraph essay on whatever the topic is, print it off and have the students take what ChatGPT wrote and actually look at the rubric that the kids are going to be scored on. The majority of the time, it writes it at about a C level. That's about as good as it gets. It now at middle school, maybe a little bit higher. By high school, a C level. By university, don't even try. <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. There's no way you can copy and paste this over. So that's number one. It's just let's let's dig into it. And we call it starting your curiosity machine. My favorite thing is when teachers go to students and say, Hey, we're just gonna start playing. Open up ChatGPT, open up an AI, and just see what it can do. Don't be afraid of it. See what it can do. See, see what it can create, what it can't create, where are its limitations. Because once we know where the limitations are, then we know how far we can trust it. The second thing is, is to have kids look at the bias and how it can just make stuff up. They call them hallucinations. I call it lying. Uh, kids <laughs> understand lying more than they understand hallucinations. <laughs> But I like to show kids that there is bias in its results. The easiest way, if anybody's doing this, the easiest way to get it to show its bias is to ask for a list. And when you ask for a list, it starts to make assumptions about things. So the easiest way, the, the one that I do with teachers, is I will say, give me a list of five must-read books for a high school teacher. And what happens is it will give you a list and you can look at it through a critical lens. The first thing we look at is what is the ethnicity of all the authors? How many male authors to female authors do you get? Look at the titles of the books it represents. And then you have to understand that this thing is pre-trained on an internet that was already biased. And so it, it'll tell you it's not biased, but it doesn't know that it was trained on the internet. That is a biased set of data. And one of the biases is when you say, give me a list for a high school teacher, it is assuming a gender of a high school teacher and it is assuming male. So what you have to say then is give me a list for a female high school teacher. And it will say, well, I don't recommend books based on gender. However, here are five books for a female high school. And it's a completely <laughs> different list all written by women. And most of them are talking about how women need to be more confident in the workplace, which is another bias list. Now, if you say, give me a list of books for an elementary school teacher, guess what gender, John, it assumes female. And so you get a set of books and you can do this with kids. I did this with a, with a set of students who are seniors last year. What are five must read books for high school seniors to have read before they graduate from school? And we started dissecting it. What is it assuming of a high school senior? And the crazy part was, is I was in a class of 90, like, I don't know, there was 30, 30 kids in the class, 28 kids mm -hmm. in the class, all of them Hispanic. And we could not get it to give us one Hispanic author. And the kids sat there and they started getting frustrated and they started getting, they started getting upset. And they're like, why won't it give me, even when I say I am a Hispanic high school kid, what are books I should read before I graduate? It's not even coming up with it. And they started getting upset. And that's what I want. I need to show kids what is the limitation of the tool so we know where not to trust it. And what I love is you have a generation of kids, middle school, high school, Gen Z, 
and Gen Alpha in our elementary school who are very DEIJ focused. Diversity, equity, inclusion. You've already talked with my colleague, Trisha. This is, this is where she said, diversity, equity, and inclusion. This, this generation, they will live and die on that mountain of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And when you show them that something isn't equitable, when something isn't giving them a diverse result, they get really upset. And I love it because mm-hmm. now we can have conversations around trust. We can have conversations about why you have to be careful about how you prompt these things. Because if you are not crafting your prompt the right way, you are going to be introducing bias into the result you're going to get. And those are conversations we get started with. From there, we can talk about, okay, well, how do we actually leverage this as a thought partner, as part of the writing process moving forward? And it shifts our assessment. And this is another part of it. And one of the things I love that this AI moment's here, because we were already moving here in education. And I just love the pandemic made us take about a five or six leap year leap forward. And then AI is on its heels and we're making another massive jump. One of the problems is, and one of the things I think we're struggling with in education is that for better or for worse, we decided that writing was the way that kids should be able to show knowledge. So if you could write well, you could tell me that you understand a concept around, pick whatever subject and whatever concept, we made kids write about it. And writing was a way I could assess knowledge. The problem is, and again, we were already heading this way, there are a lot of different ways to assess knowledge other than writing. And so we're going to have to come up with different types of assessment. And actually what we were doing, even though we weren't talking about it, is we created an inequity in our classrooms that only good writers got good grades. As somebody who is dyslexic and was not a good, and still to this day is not a good writer, the worst thing you could do for me is ask me to write an essay about what I know. Tell me to give up and give a presentation. This is what I do for a living. I'll blow it out of the water. Ask me to write a five paragraph essay. I graduated with a 2.2. You can tell how that well that went. We got caught up in a situation where we ended up, we were assessing the product of learning, not the process. If you were only assessing the essay, if you were only assessing the video, you missed the learning. See, the learning happens in the process of creating the product, not the product itself. I never grade the product. And I know that sounds horrible. I don't grade the product. I grade the rough draft. I grade the critical thinking. I grade the edits that students give each other. I grade the prompt that students give to AI to get the essay. I can look at a prompt that a kid gives and I can tell you whether or not they understand the concept if they have the knowledge needed to have it produce the essay that is going to come out the other end. I don't care about the essay. I need to know, do you have the knowledge? And I can find that in the process of learning, not the product. Jeff, uh, where can people find you and learn more about your work? I know you talked about shifting schools. I'll clearly put that link on the show notes. Anywhere else or any articles or any other podcasts you've done or you said you you speak a lot. I know you speak a lot. Any talks you want to refer folks to? You can find everything over at jeffutech.com. That's probably the, the other one. Uh, at jeffutech.com, you can see all of the presentations that I've given or presentations I have coming up. I have over there also uh, LinkedIn is an incomplete a list of talks that I have given. So if you go to YouTube and you type in Jeff Udick, it's linked over on jeffudick.com. You will find a playlist of all the talks, including one of the talks that I gave during the pandemic uh, to the UN-sponsored conference, uh, talking about Wikipedia, actually, on how that is the one website I think every kid everywhere in the world needs to know how to use. So that's probably at jeffudick.com, shiftingschools.com. You can find our podcast, Shifting Schools, anywhere that podcasts are downloaded. We uh, do a bunch of mini series right now. We're in a mini series on SEL. Uh, we just got done doing a mini series on esports uh, in education. That's what I do with my co-host Trisha Friedman, who you already had on the podcast as well. Uh, so those are those are probably the two places: jeffydick.com, shiftingschools.com. Of course, you can find everywhere on social media and any anywhere else. But uh, 
those are probably the two websites to to go to and learn. And the Shifting Schools website's got so many resources. I really highly recommend headed over there. The newsletter that Trisha puts out every week comes with a free resource that is you're ready to, we call them ready to roll resources. You can take them and plop them right down into your, into your school. A lot of them are SEL focused because that's Trisha's big focus. And a lot of them are around SEL and digital and media literacy because that's my focus. And so the two of us work together on creating resources. So shiftingschools.com and shifting schools podcast, anywhere you can find your podcast are, are two great ways to connect with us. Thank you so much, Jeff, for your time today. This was very informative. Thank you. Thanks, John. Thank you for listening today. I hope you got some great tips that you can bring back into your teaching. Remember, have a life teaching without sacrificing your own. Also, don't forget to subscribe and be well.